Welcome to Terminal Talk, the podcast about mainframes and mainframe-related topics. I'm Jeff. And I'm Frank. And this is a very special episode, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I ran the math, and it, it actually checks out. This is episode number 100. 100. And, you, and they said it wouldn't last. Do you remember the first episode? I do. Ep- actually, episode zero. <laughs> yeah, where you made fun of me the entire time. Uh you're going to have to narrow down the episodes <laughs> on that one. But yeah, first one was in 2017 with Anthony Sophia. Right. Then we got Jeff Fry and just kind of went from there. Yeah, it's been it's been a great ride, I think. Yeah. So we we've had our um our special stuff today. We um you treated me to Starbucks. Yeah. Yep. yep. We got some dipping dots. dots. Yeah. yeah. So you must have a a fantastic guest plan for today. Um Frank. Um you have a fantastic guest for us today, right? I had a good guest in mind. Okay, and? Yeah, if you don't email people, they don't actually show up. Yeah. All right. Tell you what, I'll go out in the hallway, and I'll see who's here. You better hope I find somebody. I'm sure you will. All right. It is It is a Monday. Okay, okay well, you know, it was... Um, Slim pickings because it is the week after share. People are, are a little bit tired and stuff like that. But uh, I found somebody. Oh, good, good. All right, you, you, who, you, who? you go. You go. For oh, okay, then. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's be professional now. Right. Uh, uh, could could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Slim Pickens. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is Ross Morey. And your title is General Manager of IBM Z and Linux One. Ooh, oh. that's impressive. See, I found a good one. You were good. So what does that mean? General manager, what does that mean? It means that uh, the buck stops here when it comes to accountability for the IBM Z business. So it's it's a fun title. <laughs> it's a fun job some days. Um, but for me, it's uh, very rewarding. And you've been doing this for a while, right? Are you calling me old? <laughs> uh, experienced. I think the word I'm using okay. is experienced. All right. Good. <laughs> I've been I've been in this role now for more than five and a half years, which is kind of I guess unheard of. Normally GMs don't last that long; they really? move. Um, but I'm really happy that I'm that I'm here. T15, um, as you know, of my baby, my most <laughs> recent baby, and got to get her all the way going in the marketplace. That's what uh, that's what it's all about. But but you've been a Z guy for for a long time, right? Like I said, you're calling me old. I get right, it. You're, you're not, I you're get not it. doing us any favors. I get it. All right. Yeah, I've been a Z guy for a long time. Let's see. Uh, my first mainframe was a 370-138 that I operated and programmed uh, when I was a junior at Marist College. So that was 75 Years no, ago? no, 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 no. Oh, my God. No, that was Frank, 70, Frank, seven. I'm trying to think. 78. I'm begging you. It was 78, and that was – well, I was only two at the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. That checks out. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But yeah, so that was my my first mainframe, which was great experience, especially, you know, being an operator as well as a system programmer on it. And uh, joined IBM um, part-time, actually was a co-op uh, when I was a second semester sophomore at Marist. But I didn't work on the mainframe then. My first mainframe experience was what, the day I joined Permanent. I joined because uh, I wanted to be an assembly language programmer. So I joined in MVS development, right? Wow. Just two MVS development. And so I met my career goal day one that I got to write assembly language operating system. <laughs> so pretty cool. And it's been a meteoric rise since then. 
I don't know, but do meteors go up and down? How, how does that work? No, but it's been it's been quite a career. I'm, you know, IBM's been very good to me. I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do you know hardcore programming and design, test, dealing with clients, then moving into management and getting to spread my wings and work with some of the great foundational you know people that have been in the history of Z. You mentioned Jeff Fry, Jeff Nick. Right, mm-hmm. Mike Swanson, Notice Jeff Amen, yep. <laughs> all, all those guys worked for me when I had my first second line job. Um, wow, it was awesome. So that must have been that must have been intriguing, right? Because they were they were they were real personalities. They were definitely real and different personalities, <laughs> real and different. But you know what? I always look at people, and I hope they look at me the same way. That um, if you come to work and you're and you're you know you're skilled at what you do, and you you have a passion for what you do. You know, sometimes you argue a little too strongly for something, and sometimes you you go off on a wrong tangent. But you got to forgive people on that, as long as their heart's in the right place and their head's in the right place. And I find that with most of the people that work on Z, which is they they're they're into technology, they know that they can change the world through IBM Z. They're passionate about it, and so hey, how long have I put up with you, Frank? <laughs> That's actually something I was talking with Joe Winchester last week at Share. And uh, we were talking about how even like the, the uh, angriest mainframe person, they'll say, you're wrong, you're doing it wrong, you don't understand. And then they'll turn around and say, put two hours on my schedule next week. We'll figure this out. I'm going to show you how to do it right. <laughs> so it's, it, there really is this like I, I need everyone to be brought up with me, which is a, yeah. a great attitude to say. Absolutely. My um, when I was an associate programmer, I have no idea what level that was back <laughs> back in the day. My senior associate team leader one day told me to RTFM, you know, <laughs> and I remember that day, and and I realized that I was maybe I shouldn't have been asking him questions that frequently every hour, <laughs> but he gave me so much time, especially after normal hours were over, and and again I just bring that up is because it was, you know. That was the first time somebody said that to me, but, but I got it right away, you know. You got to do a little research on your own. But I think that mainframers across the board, around the world, any country you go to, um, they're willing to help people. We see that always. The number of people with open MacBooks is, is kind of evident. Just to be, oh, there it is. Okay, great. Right. That's right. That's right. So uh, I don't want to delve too much into your, your, your past, but when, when did you first run into Mr. DeGilio here? Jeez, it's got to be twenty-five years ago at yeah, least. More, right? I think more than when, that. You were a first line when when I first really met Co- you. Console yeah. services or which one? Um, we were in uh, architecture. Yeah, I think it was in the architecture. Yeah, that might, that's probably what it was. It's so, a long time, long ago. time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to blank him out. Jeff, you got to realize. <laughs> I, I would have imagined just like a seared portion yeah. of your your mind at that point. <laughs> so, when did you start looking into the, the management side of your career? So I. I um you know as I I really meant it when I joined IBM I just wanted to write assembly language operating system for this thing for your and mind. it was and it was I wasn't thinking about management at all and I I didn't you know I, I wanted to have fun and writing code was fun but then after a few years you write code then you design then you interact with clients at Share and Guide then you do you know you get on the get on the queues and handle some APARs and I'd done basically every single role you could do in Jazz <laughs> two and. And people were saying, Ross, you'd be a good manager. You should try it. I was like, yeah, all right. I need to do something else. So it was six and a half years as an individual contributor. And then I 
I tried it. And uh, my first management job was console services. Took me out of Jez, not too far away <laughs> to something I touched, um, but it was good. And the funny thing about this job for me is there's two funny things, if I may. The first was I learned about the importance of learning how to do proper planning if you're a manager. Uh-huh. I did on my first fall plan for console services and planned a very big release. Um, it was part of a very big release. And the next year when we were executing, we realized that I did all the programming assumptions on my own capability. And we had to hire an entire second first-line department of people <laughs> to do the project. <laughs> and so my first lesson there is, you know, people make mistakes and you got to learn from it. And that's what one of the things that I hope all IBMers treat each other that way. You know, you're allowed to make mistakes. Now, I didn't do it again. I did it again and again, then, you know, fire me, please. But <laughs> I didn't. But the other thing I learned about careers in that job, because I never thought of career. I never did. It was just like, let's go to work and have fun. Another peer first line kept telling to me that I needed a career plan. I needed to have a book and write it down and plan, plan, plan. So I listened to him, and I was in that role for two years. The entire second year in the role, I lobbied to get this first line architecture job. Lobbied, lobbied, lobbied. Sure enough, I eventually got it. I was in that. It was my dream job, first line (laughs) architecture, right? Couldn't be any better. Six months in, I get called into my director's office. That's Dick Butler at the time. And he says, Ross, you're going over here. You're going to get a new job. I was thinking, I lobbied for a year to get this job. And I only lasted six months. But it turned out he was uh, – he wanted me to move over to a transformational job, which uh, turned out to be really good. So I, I can't complain because sometimes those folks that are a little bit higher than you in the organization actually do have some wisdom and some experience <laughs> and maybe can help guide some young person's career. Well, sometimes people have their your best interest in mind. You just – you're not experienced enough to know it yet. That's right. <laughs> it was really interesting. The best jobs I've had were the ones that I totally couldn't plan for. That was one of them. I couldn't plan for it because it didn't exist. They That's created right. it and wanted to put me in it, you know. Do you have any kind of tips for people who are just new to mainframe, either within or at one of our business partners or clients, how to stay uh, attached and in the know technically while also having that kind of business perspective? I think that um, – I, I think – the, the attached technically is really important, and it's going to happen through your network and through people that decide they want to mentor you. Um, and I think that's really, really important, especially if you're new. You, it's hard to get in any type of complex business and move and get your feet on the ground well if you don't have some some, some sponsorship, you've got a network, uh, you know, and you've got mentors that you can go and talk to in a penalty-free way. So that's my encouragement on the technical side. And then from a business perspective, if you're in that type of role, I mean, you have to understand a bit of the history of mainframe to know where it's probably going to go and what needs to change, Mm -hmm. right? Like we put tailored fit pricing in. People said we'd never change MLC, (laughs) but we did. Why? Because we needed to change direction because looking in the rearview mirror was heading us into the ground, and now we're not. So I think from a business point of view, understanding a bit of the history of a business with a mainframe, whether you're an ISV, you know, you're an SI, you're an outsourcer, whatever, you're in IBM, you're a client. I think a little bit of the history is important to know where to go in the future, what things to preserve, like scalability and availability <laughs> and performance and Amazing security. how those keep coming <laughs> right, back up. Right, and which <laughs> things you can leave in the past. So uh, we've already established that you have a fair amount of experience here. 
If you were to look across your career, what were the big inflection points for the mainframe um, between uh, the day you started till, till now? You. Okay. <laughs> well, it's an interesting perspective. Um, so when I started, you got to think of we were, we were rolling in the era of bipolar, bipolar. systems. We're, we IBM, you know. John Opal's on the cover of Time. We're growing to be a $100 billion company. We're building manufacturing plants all over the world. And, you know, I was writing software, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand the scope of the business. I understood it from my little position within Myers Corners Lab, right, and, and MVS <laughs> development. And things were honky-dory. We were really, it was really good. And then, you know, the early 90s came and, and life changed for all of us here in the Valley and most IBMers around the world. And so that was the really big first inflection point for me, the reality that we weren't invincible, that wasn't, it wasn't a God-given right. You had to earn it. Um, the sadness of, of having colleagues, family, and friends get laid off around you and to see the devastation in the community and in your church and in the schools and, and everywhere. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, that's not really – that is a business impact to the to, of my personal life. And so that was the really first big one. And um, what I learned from that, though, was that the strong survive, the adaptive survive. You have to be innovative. You have to be looking forward. You, ha you cannot rest on your laurels. And I really think that um, – that the next period after those first round of layoffs in, you know, 92, 93, 94, for me was really when um, G4, remember Generation 4, had just enough horsepower to equal the largest competitive machine, which was a Hitachi at the time, and then G5 blew past it. We never looked back. And I was actually the VP of System 390 hardware development then. Mm -hmm. So I was in there for G3, G4, G5, and G6, and I got to see that that, that bet that Lou Gershner placed on us. Could you, bring, could you bring the mainframe back in a new technology, recreate a quintessential business model in business and do it quickly before the world moved on without you? And we did it. So that was clearly the second, second biggest moment. So kind of like the recovery from the bad moment was, uh, felt pretty good. And this is the transition to CMOS? So this is, yeah, so... We transitioned to CMOS because the company crashed. I mean, right. the bi bipolar systems just basically had priced themselves out of the market. And we had done a lot of innovations, but I would say they were innovations that didn't matter. Uh, remember that IBM thing about innovation that matters? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's got to matter to— There's another side to that. It's got to matter to your clients and to <laughs> right. the world or don't work on it. Just you know, yeah. If you're just innovating, innovating to scratch your own itch— I mean, do that at home. Don't don't right. do it for don't do it for where you work. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so this was this was so ninety two ninety three is like when things crashed, and then yes, yeah, so this was the rebirth of the mainframe in CMOS technology, and again the third generation. The, the, there was really no first generation. The second generation <laughs> barely sold. The third generation took off, but it wasn't nearly as powerful as the bi bipolar machines from Fujitsu and Hitachi right. and Amdahl. Um, then G4 proved that we were in the game and G5 blew them away and we never looked back. So it took – and we were putting out a generation a year back then. Oof. None of this wait two and a half years. <laughs> wow. Oh, there, yeah. We worked, we worked weekends always. It was like – it was a constant go. But it was – it felt really good because we had a purpose. We had a purpose and a mission for our colleagues and the company, for our shareholders and for our clients because we heard a lot from our clients that they wanted us back. They needed us back. 
We had to prove it by putting out systems that were on a different price scale, right? But wow. would still meet the meet the those illities <laughs> that they that they expect. I like that. Yeah. And then the next big pivot would probably be sixty four bit. Nope. Oh, for me personally. Next biggest pivot was I can tell you th- stuff about 64-bit and other things, EXA okay. architecture and all that. But for me was I got a call to go to Paris. Vic D'Onofrio called me. He says, hey, Ross, we want you to go to Paris. And I said, Texas? <laughs> 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 because as a lab rat, I was always in the lab, right? I was a developer. You know, I thought – if I ever went on an international assignment, it would be Berblingen or Hursley. Like there were no other places. <laughs> it would be one of those two places. There were other development labs. I'm just saying in my yeah. narrow-minded head. Mm-hmm. And so he said, no, you idiot. Paris, France. <laughs> and I was like, oh, why do you want me to go there? Do they have programming there? No. Right? Go go be in – it was uh, manufacturing – I mean it wasn't M&D. It was S&D headquarters, like sales and distribution headquarters for Europe, Middle East, Africa. And they wanted me to go get a broadening assignment there, which was good. Get my get get me out of development and let me see what the real world was like. And it was a phenomenal personal experience and, and professional experience. But that was that was a big changing point for me as well. When I came back, um, I knew I wanted to go back to the lab right away. But I knew I learned a lot and I saw the world differently. And I came back and Nick said, well, we thought you were going back to the lab, but there's another detour, Ross. You're going to go be <laughs> Lou Gershner's TA. So I argued with Nick about that as well, about I had had two and a half years in headquarters. I didn't really want to go down to Armonk. And he listened to me and then he said, oh, you didn't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be Lou Gershner's next TA. In fact, you're going to meet him in two days. And I was like, OK. Wow. <laughs> so I got to do the EMEA stint for two and a half years, Gershner's TA for – nine months. And I view that period as transformational for me in my in my head about what I could do and wanted to do in IBM. It was at that time I decided that I really felt that I could be an executive and that would be good for me because I think I could add a lot of value to the people I cared about, which were in development, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, in other functions, but you know, kind of where I came from. And so uh, that started the journey. And when I left Lou's office, that's when I came back to Poughkeepsie to become the head of 390 Hardware Development, a software person in the hardware slot, first ever for IBM. Like a double agent. <laughs> first ever. First ever. They, they survived me. So, so um, and, I, and I do want you to move on, but, but this is kind of an important thing to me, that that transition from being kind of a lab rat to really understanding where the clients are. What, what was that? How was how did that come about, really? I mean, I get that you were embedded with S&D, but were there kind of – what were the things that yeah. you came away from with that? Yeah, so before I – let me just real quick. Before I went to Europe, I mean, I went to Share and Guide. We used to carry – I'd carry some of my module listings with me. And on <laughs> breaks, we'd open them up and look at them with a few clients that really under, had read the code too and decided what we were going to do in it. So, so I had some client interaction. But it's nothing like when you're actually out there in a sales situation or you're trying to – you're not maybe trying to do a transaction, but you're trying to sell a strategy. You're trying to understand the client's pain points. And their pain points can be – are way more than technical, mm-hmm. Right. It's the financial situation of the company, but it's also what country you're in. What are the laws and regulations? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, I, and that kind of opened me up to the complexity of business and how 
solutions like ours could be a big help or could be a boat anchor. It just, you know, <laughs> it's right. the same thing. It depends how you want to, you know, how right. do you use this weapon, right? Do you use it for to help a company or does it just weigh them down and tie them down? And I think that all those complexities, especially of being in Europe, because that was a time before the EU. So when you cross the border, you actually got a stamp in your passport, right. <laughs> you know. And I was in Europe for two and a half years and I went to all but two countries. So I really traveled a wow. lot there and I got to see the cultures. And it's not just the cultures uh, in terms of language and food and customs, but it's, easy, it's also of business. You get to see the difference in business. I mean, things are becoming more homogenous now with the EU, but I would tell you if you dig deep, you can still find it's a lot different in Spain than it is in Denmark, <laughs> right? And that's not a bad thing. I say viva la difference, but but that was a big that was a big learning for me, Frank. And uh, I think that was what really opened me up to. There's a, there was so much more to learn. At first, I thought learning was about learning the MVS operating system and knowing all the components and how they work together. Then I kind of stepped back and, oh, there's a hardware it runs on. Then I was over in Europe and I'm like, oh, my God, it's like the whole world I have to sort of figure out now. <laughs> but again, you don't have to figure the whole world out, but understanding the context that a customer is in at that moment when you're trying to help them is really important. And again, very complex and very different. Yeah, and that's, and that's I think, even for... Um, our listeners who, who aren't IBMers, a very val valuable thing to understand is not just the technology around this stuff, which is really cool, but, but most of the software and all the work that they've done has evolved around a particular business process. And understanding that yep. business is a really important aspect of being good on this platform. Yes. And then when their business processes need to change because there's something that's disruptive, which is usually a technology that's disrupting it. Other times it's a business model change in their industry, but lots of times that business model changes because of technology change and have them see, have to change their processes. That's when it gets really, really interesting. And it's and very difficult. You look at the banks in the U.S. and the regulatory environment they're in, and it's just their business processes are getting more regulated, more complex, more have to have traceability and trackability through them. It's customers' jobs are hard. We think our jobs are hard. Their yeah. jobs are hard. Very hard. Linux. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. I was, I was hoping we would get there. I remember I came into IBM just as Linux was landing on the mainframe. And uh, looking back, I realized it was not so much just that we're going to allow it to run here but we're going to embrace it and, mm. and support it and go forward with it. Um, I also remember people being angry about it and saying, this doesn't belong in the mainframe. This is a toy operating yeah. system. Like looking back, knowing that there's always doubters that don't see like maybe like the long term. And, and sometimes I shudder to think about where we'd be today if that bold decision weren't made. How do you frame those kind of big pivots? Is that, is that rank up there with like the, the other ones that we were talking about? Yeah, I think from a, from a strategy discussion for IBM and for systems and for Z, that, this is a big one. This is a big one for us to embrace or not to embrace. And um, what I try to do uh, for these big transformational ideas is I try to have my own opinion, even if it's shallow. Not, I mean, I'm not a PhD in an area. I still try to read what's going on in the market, whether it's press or IEEE or just try to gather outside information and then 
who do you trust inside IBM that's talking to you? Because I'm usually not the innovator. I'm the one who somebody brings the great idea to. Uh-huh. And I remember this day in Building 5, in which was the brief, old briefing center in Poughkeepsie, and Carl Heinz Strassemeyer pulled me aside and took me into a, into a stairwell. And I said, oh, I'm in really in trouble now, right? Because <laughs> he was a distinguished engineer from Berblingen, right? And Don't go into stairwells. He was, a, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a notorious um, genius and um, pushed the envelope a lot. And he told me, we have Linux running on the mainframe. I said, you're going to work on it? No, he said, no, no, it's running. I said, why are you telling me? He says, because we want you to tell management. And I said, <laughs> oh, you want me to get fired? And he said, well, not really, but we think you'll, have, you'll be better at it, you know? So, so they brought me into the fold then, and I already knew a bit about Linux. Um, and it really intrigued me. And I knew it wasn't going to take over um, for MVS, ZOS. But I also knew that it had real potential and that the open source model was something that the world hadn't really reckoned with yet to see the power of open source. And if you remember back then, the uh, the licenses, uh, the GNU license uh, in particular was very restrictive, which yeah. is why IBM was so paranoid about it because of our IP rights and protecting our IP. Um, and so it was a complex topic, but luckily most of the executives that was, I went up the chain and talked to people both in the division and in, and in corporate, um, they at least had open minds about it. They didn't just shut it down. Um, and then there was a few people that saw Linux as the ultimate weapon against uh, Windows. Right. And so I, whether, they, whether they were on the side of open source or not, they wanted a combatant that we didn't have. So that's why I think a lot of people got on the bandwagon. But as we rolled forward, you know, I contacted Marist and asked them if they would host uh, the, the 370, no, 390, you know, kernel-dependent mods and things like that. And it's still hosted there today. So I was in kind of on the ground floor. I wasn't, you know, an innovator. I was more of an enabler trying to help get things going. But then when the company under Sam's leadership really decided to launch our Linux initiative, put the billion dollars into it, form the LTC and all that, uh, Sam and, and Irving Ledeski-Berger announced that in the in the uh, New York Times, and I was employee one that uh, that Irving grabbed. So that was pretty cool. And I got to hire Linux Technology Center employee one, Dan Fry, oh. who was a band <laughs> 10 at the time, right? And so we got to build the LTC from scratch. And again, I was I'm pretty proud of what IBM has done along the way in the open source community, including we were one of the four founding partners, and I was the chairman for the first four years of the OSDL, which is now called the Linux Foundation, which is, I think, arguably one of the most important and successful open source, um, you know, incubators, if you would, uh, foundations, not for profits, that there is. And so, you know, we were, we were in on the ground floor on a lot of things. And uh, so the how do we have that vision? I don't know. I just <laughs> said that sometimes you got to try things. And this one felt like it had the right ingredients. It just felt like it would be it, – to me, it wasn't a threat. To me, it was, it was a, something that could actually change our business for the better. And that's why, you know, you're, you're kind of underselling yourself on this. <laughs> I'm not an innovator crap because – it takes a, a fair amount of vision to go, hey, this is something different. We should really do this, right? And I, I got to believe, you know, the way things are moving these days is that's coming in quite handy. 
as we kind of, you know, look into the face of the renaissance of the mainframe. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, to me, to me, this is the year of the renaissance of ZOS. And the, and the reason is because of the Red Hat acquisition and having OpenShift, Ansible, and all those other products, not just on Linux on Z, but connecting to, enabling, and working with in great harmony with ZOS. So I'm, so Linux, if you would, may, may have come full circle in 20 mm-hmm. years to now be the thing that brings ZOS back. I and mean, that's what clients are telling me. Right. That's what they're literally telling me. But, but back to just uh, on Linux, there's, there's so many thoughts there. Um, I, I've, had a f- I've had a lot of ideas along the way. But especially if you're a VP or you're a general manager, if you have three good ideas every day and you get everybody working on them, it's going to be chaos. <laughs> so I try to pick my moments. Um, and I'm proud of Linux. I've done a few other ones. I mean, uh, blockchain, you know, I was down in research with Donna Dillenberger, and I'd heard about blockchain, right, read about it. And then Donna showed me how, uh, how uh, it actually ran on Z, and nobody knew that she had done that, of course. Um, and that got me going on blockchain. The next day, I I literally came back from Yorktown the next day, called my team together and said, guess what we're going to invest in next. (laughs) But where I'm going with this is, remember, blockchain is really running on Linux on Z. And the next logical thing is we need to be connected to the IBM cloud. And for decades, the IBM cloud people have been pushing. They didn't want to talk to the mainframe people, right? But we had something to talk to them about because we could run blockchain faster and more secure than anybody. So that got us in the conversation. And voila, three to four years later, we've now got Linux One systems in the IBM MZRs around the world. And we're part, not only part of the IBM public cloud, I'd say we're an essential part for the enterprises that are going to be lo- locate their data in the IBM public cloud globally. Again, it keeps going back to uh, it's amazing how much security, scalability, performance, resilience it just keeps paying off. <laughs> well, it does. And, you know, so we all stand on the backs of giants, right? right. Um, but it's also then recognizing what you're good at and not trying to do things that you're not good at, mm-hmm. but maybe taking the things that you're good at and are valuable and, du- and keep doubling down on them because they, in theory, should continue <laughs> to grow in value, in theory. And I think that security, encryption, especially with post-quantum crypto coming, right. I mean, I think we're, we're in the mix everywhere because in the end, for the privacy of your data, the security of your data, I think Z is going to play a major component of that for long, long, long into the future. As Frank pointed out, I'm, I'm really old, um, <laughs> but I guess that means I'm experienced and I've come full circle. My office now as GM is probably less than 100 yards from my very first office as a junior programmer. (laughs) That was a lofty title, by the way. So, you know, I've come full circle. But what I really love today in Poughkeepsie and in all the strategic labs uh, for Z around the world is how we're transforming. I mean, I see agile practices and tools and methods, not just in software development, but we're doing it in chip design and development. We're doing it in firmware. We're, we're trying to model agility into our business processes, right? I see us embracing um, offering management, and, which is a real a discipline, which if you have discipline, you can do things better than just being lucky, right? And that's mm-hmm. what offering management. And then I'm so thankful that Phil Gilbert introduced me to design and design thinking about eight plus years ago. 
Um, I always felt that, I mean, IBM was a great design company and we kind of lost that. And I think it was through the, the, the early 90s when we, when we were downsized that we lost it. We lost the people, the humans, because in the end, it's the humans that do the design. We lost the people. And so Phil was bringing that back. And I'm so happy that I could start our own, you know, to set a, hire a set of designers and keep building on that, having now our own um, design studio in Poughkeepsie, having Shani Sandy come on board, who's an experienced designer, hired from the industry, because, again, talent matters. And, 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 and I would just want to end on this, that this, you know, you, you can't teach an old dog to do new tricks. Yes, you can. Look what we've done for Z14. And when I mean Z14, I mean the hardware and the software, the whole stack, right? For Z14, as our first run, major run, using design thinking, and now with Z15, you, you can't argue with me that it didn't make an absolutely material difference with what we've shipped and the customer reception for it. So there's a lot of learnings in history, Availability, scalability, serviceability, security, performance, right? But then you can apply new thinking and new te techniques and new and new technologies to really change the game. And again, design thinking—you can tell what I think about design thinking. <laughs> I'm think really super high on it. But uh, my last thought is: don't ever think that we're done here. We've got such smart such motivated, dedicated employees. Some of them look like Frank, like with gray <laughs> beards. Some of them look like you, Jeff. They've got dark beards still, no gray showing through. But whatever, you know, whatever, you know, age you are or place you are in your career, if you're part of this team, you can innovate, you can make a difference, and we make a difference in the world, and we'll continue to do that. Is, is there anything that you can tell us without getting into trouble about the future? What's going to happen in the future? Um, post-quantum crypto will be needed because w the United States and, and IBM will not be the only nations that create quantum computers. And when the bad guys have them, all our current crypto is toast. So if it's something important, you better re-encrypt it with post-quantum crypto algorithms. Um, I'm fully convinced of that. I um, don't need a crystal ball. That's, that one's coming because the bad guys aren't going away when right. it comes to cyber. They're only going to get more powerful tools. They're using AI now, right? So we have to use AI to combat them. So I think from a security point of view, Z and what we do well and what we're adding on, homomorphic encryption and things like that, will just enhance the security that we bring to the table and it will be needed. So Looking in the future, that that's going to happen. Sun's going to come up. Sun's going to go down. We're going to pay taxes. We're going to need security, and we need post-quantum crypto. And then I think um, what I think is the really interesting thing here is, you know, what will the model of computing, and I'll explain what I mean by model, really be 10 and 20 years from now? I mean, we see hyperscale data centers. We see now that IBM has, you know, 19-inch rack quote unquote mainframes or Linux one systems in the IBM cloud, right? We surface that those uh, a lot of those capabilities as services. So if you, we didn't tell them they're running on a Linux one, they'd, you know, client would never know. Um, but where does the model of computing go? And that, that's the big question now with hybrid cloud and on premises and off. And because I think that the I think that the good old days of people like me that wanted to write operating system code and get deep and all that. You'll still need people to create it, but the people that operate and manage it don't want to do that anymore. Right. 
I think that's the that again. There's always going to be smart people that want to create micros and operating system code and all that stuff. I think that the management of it is complex. It takes high skills, and it's getting worse by some of our competitors. I mean, I would say Intel and Microsoft have upped the game of making system management a nightmare for clients right. with a number of certs going out and patches that have to go on, et cetera. And, you know, not to bash the competition, but I'm just saying things are changing and business models are changing. And so I, what I think was really interesting is how fast does this quote-unquote cloud phenomena happen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen at a rate, rate and pace. To me, it doesn't matter if mainframes are on-premises or off-premises, as long as they're somewhere and they can run the work fast and secure. But I think that's going to be one of the most fascinating things to watch in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, it's happening, but there's no light switch. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. So, I again, what's going to happen in the future? I think that's really the one to watch. And us, IBM, having Red Hat, pretty cool. I, especially, I mean, again, I'm – we're always going to support multiple distributions. So please don't go down the Linux route with me. I'm on that higher plane of having the Kubernetes standard, having Ansible as a standard for automation, et cetera. That's what will make hybrid cloud come to life is having a fabric and set of standards so that you can manage, monitor, maintain your, your heterogeneous set systems, again, whether they're on-prem, off-prem, cloud-prem, whatever. Awesome. Um, we're uh, actually beyond the bottom of the hour here. So uh, I'd like to uh, thank you, Ross, for coming in and being with us. Thank you. Let, let's pretend that we had him in playing the whole time. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad I was just walking up and down the halls <laughs> looking for something to do and that Grabbing I could come M&Ms. chat with you guys today. And really glad I could be part of the 100th anniversary or 100th episode. 100th episode. Um, and I do remember when you started – I think I was encouraging, wasn't yes, I? of course. Wasn't I? Right? Uh, it's amazing that you went from those first couple, so I probably talked to you uh, when you had five or six out at the most, mm-hmm. to come to 100th. So congratulations and keep on rocking, guys. Thanks a lot. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.